Caesar Augustus, Part V, of the Lives of the Twelve Caesars, by Gaius Suetonius Tranquillus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lenny. The Lives of the Twelve Caesars by Gaius Suetonius Tranquillus. Translated by Alexander Thompson and edited by T. Forster. Augustus Caesar, Part 5, Paragraph 70 to 89. A private entertainment which he gave, commonly called the Supper of the Twelve Gods, and at which the guests were dressed in the habit of gods and goddesses, while he personated Apollo himself, afforded subject of much conversation, and was imputed to him not only by Antony in his letters, who likewise names all the parties concerned, but in the following well-known anonymous verses. Cum primum istorum conduxit mensa coragum, sexque deos vidit malia, sexque deas, impia dum foibi caesar mendacia ludit, dum nova divorum coinat adulteria, omnia se ateris tunc numina declinarunt, fugit et auratus Jupiter ipse tronos. When Malia late beheld in mingled train twelve mortals ate twelve deities in vain, Caesar assumed what was Apollo's due, and wine and lust inflamed the motley crew. At the foul sight the gods avert their eyes, and from his throne great Jove indignant flies. What rendered this supper more obnoxious to public censure was that it happened at a time when there was a great scarcity, and almost a famine, in the city. The day after, there was a cry current among the people, that the gods had eaten up all the corn, and that Caesar was indeed Apollo, but Apollo the Tormentor, under which title that god was worshipped in some quarter of the city. He was likewise charged with being excessively fond of fine furniture and Corinthian vessels, as well as with being addicted to gaming. For, during the time of the proscription, the following line was written upon his statue. Pater Argentarius ego Corinthiarius. My father was a silversmith, my dealings are in brass. Because it was believed that he had put some persons upon the list of the proscribed only to obtain the Corinthian vessels in their possession. And afterwards, in the Sicilian War, the following epigram was published. Postquam bis classe victus now is perdidit, aliquando ut wincat ludit assidue aliam. Twice having lost a fleet in luckless fight, to win at last he games both day and night. With respect to the charge or imputation of loathsome impurity before mentioned, he very easily refuted it by the chastity of his life, at the very time when it was made, as well as ever afterwards. His conduct likewise gave the lie to that of luxurious extravagance in his furniture, when, upon the taking of Alexandria, he reserved for himself nothing of the royal treasures but a porcelain cup, and soon afterwards melted down all the vessels of gold, even such as were intended for common use. But his amorous propensities never left him, and, as he grew older, as is reported, he was in the habit of debauching young girls, who were procured for him from all quarters, even by his own wife. To the observations on his gaming, 
he paid not the smallest regard, but played in public, but purely for his diversion, even when he was advanced in years, and not only in the month of December, but at other times, and upon all days, whether festivals or not. This evidently appears from a letter under his own hand, in which he says, I supped, my dear Tiberius, with the same company. We had, besides, Vinicius and Silvius, the father. We gained at supper like old fellows, both yesterday and today. And, as any one threw upon the tally aces or sixes, he put down for every talus a denarius, all which was gained by him who threw a Venus. In another letter he says, We had, my dear Tiberius, a pleasant time of it during the festival of Minerva, for we played every day, and kept the gaming-board warm. Your brother uttered many exclamations at a desperate run of ill-fortune, but recovering by degrees, and unexpectedly, he in the end lost not much. I lost twenty thousand sesterces for my part, but then I was profusely generous in my play, as I commonly am. For, had I insisted upon the stakes which I declined, or kept what I gave away, I should have won about fifty thousand. But this I like better, for it will raise my character for generosity to the skies. In a letter to his daughter, he writes thus, I have sent you two hundred and fifty denarii, which I gave to every one of my guests, in case they were inclined at supper to divert themselves with the tally, or at the game of even or odd. In other matters, it appears that he was moderate in his habits, and free from suspicion of any kind of vice. He lived at first near the Roman Forum, above the ringmaker's stairs, in a house which had once been occupied by Calvus, the orator. He afterwards moved to the Palatine Hill, where he resided in a small house belonging to Hortensius, no way remarkable, either for size or ornament. The piazzas being but small, the pillars of Alban stone, and the rooms without anything of marble or fine paving. He continued to use the same bedchamber, both winter and summer, during forty years. For, though he was sensible that the city did not agree with his health in the winter, he nevertheless resided constantly in it during that season. If at any time he wished to be perfectly retired and secure from interruption, he shut himself up in an apartment at the top of his house, which he called his Syracuse or Technophuan, or he went to some villa belonging to his freedmen near the city. But when he was indisposed, he commonly took up his residence in the house of Messinus. Of all the places of retirement from the city, he chiefly frequented those upon the sea-coast and the islands of Campania, or the towns nearest the city, such as Lanuvium, Prenesti, and Tibur, where he often used to sit for the administration of justice in the porticos of the temple of Hercules. He had a particular aversion to large and sumptuous palaces, and some which had been raised at a vast expense by his granddaughter, Julia, he leveled to the ground. Those of his own, which were far from being spacious, he adorned, not so much with statues and pictures, as with walks and groves, and things which were curious either for their antiquity or rarity, such as, at Caprae, the huge limbs of sea-monsters and wild beasts, which some affect to call the bones of giants, and also the arms of ancient heroes. His frugality in the furniture of his house appears even at this day, from some beds and tables still remaining, most of which are scarcely elegant enough for a private family. 
it is reported that he never lay upon a bed, but such as was low and meanly furnished. He seldom wore any garment, but what was made by the hands of his wife, sister, daughter, and granddaughters. His togas were neither scanty nor full, and the clavus was neither remarkably broad or narrow. His shoes were a little higher than common, to make him appear taller than he was. He had always clothes and shoes, fit to appear in public, ready in his bedchamber for any sudden occasion. At his table, which was always plentiful and elegant, he constantly entertained company, but was very scrupulous in the choice of them, both as to rank and character. Valerius Messala informs us that he never admitted any freedman to his table, except Minas, when rewarded with the privilege of citizenship, for betraying Pompey's fleet. He writes himself that he invited to his table a person in whose villa he lodged, and who had formerly been employed by him as a spy. He often came late to table, and withdrew early, so that the company began supper before his arrival, and continued at table after his departure. His entertainments consisted of three entries, or at most of only six. But if his fare was moderate, his courtesy was extreme. For those who were silent or talked in whispers, he encouraged to join in the general conversation, and introduced buffoons and stage-players, or even low performers from the circus, and very often itinerant humorists, to enliven the company. Festivals and holidays he usually celebrated very expensively, but sometimes only with merriment. In the Saturnalia, or at any other time when the fancy took him, he distributed to his company clothes, gold, and silver, sometimes coins of all sorts, even of the ancient kings of Rome and of foreign nations. Sometimes nothing but towels, sponges, rakes, and tweezers, and other things of that kind, with thickets on them, which were enigmatical and had a double meaning. He used likewise to sell by lot among his guests articles of very unequal value, and pictures with their fronts reversed. And so, by the unknown quality of the lot, disappoint or gratify the expectation of the purchasers. The sort of traffic went round the whole company, everyone being obliged to buy something, and to run the chance of loss or gain with the rest. He ate sparingly, for I must not omit even this, and commonly used a plain diet. He was particularly fond of coarse bread, small fishes, new cheese made of cow's milk, and green figs of the sort which bear fruit twice a year. He did not wait for supper, but took food at any time and in any place when he had an appetite. The following passages relative to this subject I have transcribed from his letters. I ate a little bread and some small dates in my carriage. Again, in returning home from the palace in my litter, I ate an ounce of bread and a few raisins. Again, no Jew, my dear Tiberius, ever keeps such strict fast upon the Sabbath as I have today, for while in the bath and after the first hour of the night I only ate two biscuits before I began to be rubbed with oil. From this great indifference about his diet, he sometimes supped by himself, before his company began, or after they had finished, and would not touch a morsel at table with his guests. He was by nature extremely sparing in the use of wine. Cornelius Nepos says that he used to drink only three times at supper in the camp at Modena, and when he indulged himself the most, he never exceeded a pint, or if he did, his stomach rejected it, 
of all wines he gave the preference to the Retian, who scarcely ever drank any in the daytime. Instead of drinking, he used to take a piece of bread dipped in cold water, or a slice of cucumber, or some leaves of lettuce, or a green, sharp, juicy apple. After a slight repast at noon, he used to seek repose, dressed as he was, and with his shoes on, his feet covered, and his hand held before his eyes. After supper, he commonly withdrew to his study, a small closet, where he sat late, until he had put down in his diary all or most of the remaining transactions of the day, which he had not before registered. He would then go to bed, but never slept above seven hours at most, and that not without interruption, for he would wake three or four times during that time. If he could not again fall asleep, as sometimes happened, he called for someone to read or tell stories to him, until he became drowsy, and then his sleep was usually protracted till after daybreak. He never liked to lie awake in the dark, without somebody to sit by him. Very early rising was apt to disagree with him. On which account, if he was obliged to rise, betimes, for any civil or religious functions, in order to guard as much as possible against the inconvenience resulting from it, he used to lodge in some apartment near the spot, belonging to any of his attendants. If at any time a fit of drowsiness seized him in passing along the streets, his litter was set down while he snatched a few moments' sleep. In person he was handsome and graceful, through every period of his life. But he was negligent in his dress, and so careless about dressing his hair, that he usually had it done in great haste by several barbers at a time. His beard he sometimes clipped, and sometimes shaved, and either red or rose during the operation. His countenance, either when discoursing or silent, was so calm and serene that a goal of the first rank declared amongst his friends that he was so softened by it as to be restrained from throwing him down a precipice in his passage over the Alps, when he had been admitted to approach him under pretense of conferring with him. His eyes were bright and piercing, and he was willing it should be thought that there was something of a divine vigor in them. He was likewise not a little pleased to see people, upon his looking steadfastly at them, lower their countenances, as if the sun shone in their eyes. But in his old age he saw very imperfectly with his left eye. His teeth were thin-set, small and scaly, his hair a little curled, and inclining to a yellow collar. His eyebrows met, his ears were small, and he had an aquiline nose. His complexion was betwixt brown and fair. His stature was low, though Julius Morethus, his freedman, says he was five feet and nine inches in height. This, however, was so much concealed by the just proportion of his limbs, that it was only perceivable upon comparison with some taller person standing by him. He is said to have been born with many spots upon his breast and belly, answering to the figure, order, and number of the stars in the constellation of the bear. He had besides several callosities resembling scars, occasioned by an itching in his body, and the constant and violent use of the strigil in being rubbed. He had a weakness in his left hip, thigh, and leg, insomuch that he often halted on that side, but he received much benefit from the use of sand and reeds. He likewise sometimes found the forefinger of his right hand so weak that, when it was benumbed and contracted with cold, to use it in writing, he was obliged to have recourse to a circular piece of horn. He had occasionally a complaint in the bladder, 
but upon voiding some stones in his urine he was relieved from that pain. During the whole course of his life he suffered, at times, dangerous fits of sickness, especially after the conquest of Cantabria, when his liver being injured by a defluxion upon it, he was reduced to such a condition that he was obliged to undergo a desperate and doubtful method of cure. For warm applications having no effect, Antonius Musa directed the use of those which were cold. He was likewise subject to fits of sickness at stated times every year, for about his birthday he was commonly a little indisposed. In the beginning of the spring he was attacked with an inflammation on the midriff, and when the wind was southerly with a cold in his head. By all these complaints his constitution was so shattered that he could not easily bear either heat or cold. In winter he was protected against the inclemency of the weather by a thick toga, four tunics, a shirt, a flannel stomacher, and swathings upon his legs and tides. In summer he lay with the doors of his bedchamber open, and frequently in a piazza refreshed by a bubbling fountain and a person standing by to fan him. He could not bear even the winter's sun, and at home never walked in the open air without a broad-brimmed hat on his head. He usually travelled in a litter, and by night, and so slow that he was two days in going to Prenassi or Tibur. And if he could go to any place by sea, he preferred that mode of travelling. He carefully nourished his health against his many infirmities, avoiding chiefly the free use of the bath. But he was often rubbed with oil, and sweated in a stove, after which he was washed with tepid water, warmed either by a fire or by being exposed to the heat of the sun when, upon account of his nerves, he was obliged to have recourse to sea-water, or the waters of Albula, he was contented with sitting over a wooden tub, which he called by a Spanish name, Dureta, and plunging his hands and feet in the water by turns. As soon as the civil wars were ended, he gave up riding and other military exercises in the campus marshes, and took to playing at ball or football but soon afterwards used no other exercise than that of going abroad in his litter, or walking. Towards the end of his walk he would run leaping, wrapped up in a short cloak or cape. For amusement he would sometimes angle or play with dice, pebbles, or nuts, with little boys, collected from various countries, and particularly Moors and Syrians, for their beauty or amusing talk. But dwarfs, and such as were in any way deformed, he held in abhorrence, as lusus naturae, nature's abortions, and of evil omen. From early youth he devoted himself with great diligence and application to the study of eloquence and the other liberal arts. In the war of Modena, notwithstanding the weighty affairs in which he was engaged, he is said to have read, written, and declaimed every day. He never addressed the senate, the people, or the army, but in a premeditated speech, though he did not want the talent of speaking extemper on the spur of the occasion. And lest his memory should fail him, as well as to prevent the loss of time in getting up his speeches, it was his general practice to recite them. In his intercourse with individuals, and even with his wife, Livia, upon subjects of importance, he wrote on his tablets all he wished to express, lest, if he spoke extempore, he should say more or less than was proper. He delivered himself in a sweet and peculiar tone, in which he was diligently instructed by a master of elocution. But when he had a code, he sometimes employed a herald to deliver his speeches to the people, 
he composed many tracts in prose on various subjects, some of which he read occasionally in the circle of his friends, as to an auditory. Among these was his Rescript to Britons Respecting Cato. Most of the pages he read himself, although he was advanced in years, but, becoming fatigued, he gave the rest to Tiberius to finish. He likewise read over to his friends his exhortations to philosophy, and the history of his own life, which he continued in thirteen books, as far as the Cantabrian War, but no farther. He likewise made some attempt at poetry. There is extant one book, written by him in examiner verse, of which both the subject and title is Sicily. There is also a book of epigrams, no larger than the last, which he composed almost entirely while he was in the bath. These are all his poetical compositions, for, though he began a tragedy with great zest, becoming dissatisfied with the style, he obliterated the whole. And his friend saying to him, What is your Ajax doing? he answered, My Ajax has met with a sponge. He cultivated a style which was neat and chaste, avoiding frivolous or harsh language, as well as obsolete words, which he calls disgusting. His chief object was to deliver his thoughts with all possible perspicuity. To attain this end, and that he might nowhere perplex or retard the reader or hearer, he made no scruple to add prepositions to his verbs, or to repeat the same conjunction several times, which, when omitted, occasion some little obscurity, but give a grace to the style. Those who used affected language or adopted obsolete words he despised, as equally faulty, though in different ways. He sometimes indulged himself in jesting, particularly with his friend Messinus, whom he rallied upon all occasions for his fine phrases, and ventured by imitating his way of talking. Nor did his spare Tiberius, who was fond of obsolete and far-fetched expressions. He charges Mark Antony with insanity, writing rather to make men stare than to be understood, and by way of sarcasm, upon his depraved and fickle taste in the choice of words, he writes to him thus, and are you yet in doubt whether Cimber Aeneas or Verenius Flaccus be more proper for your imitation? Whether you will adopt words which Celestius Crispus has borrowed from the Origenes of Cato? Or do you think that the verbose empty bombast of Asiatic orators is fit to be transfused into our language? And, in a letter where he commends the talent of his granddaughter Agrippina, he says, But you must be particularly careful, both in writing and speaking, to avoid affectation. In ordinary conversation, he made use of several peculiar expressions, as appears from his letters in his own handwriting, in which, now and then, when he means to intimate that some persons would never pay their debts, he says, they will pay at the Greek calends. And when he advised patience in the present posture of affairs, he would say, let us be content with our cato. To describe anything in haste, he said, it was sooner done than asparagus cooked. He constantly puts bacellus for stultus, puleiacius for pulus, vaquerosus for queritus, vapide se habere for male, and betizare for languere, which is commonly called lacanitare. Likewise, simus for sumus, domos for domus in the genitive singular. With respect to the last two peculiarities, 
lest any person should imagine that they were only slips of his pen and not customary with him he never varies i have likewise remarked the singularity in his handwriting he never divides his words so as to carry the letters which cannot be inserted at the end of a line to the next but puts them below the other enclosed by a bracket he did not adhere strictly to orthography as laid down by the grammarians but seems to have been of the opinion of those who think that we ought to write as we speak for as to his changing and omitting not only letters but whole syllables it is a vulgar mistake nor should i have taken notice of it but that it appears strange to me that any person should have told us that he sent a successor to a consular lieutenant of a province as an ignorant illiterate fellow upon his observing that he had written ixi for ipsi when he had occasion to write in cipher he put b for a c for b and so forth and instead of z a a he was no less fond of the greek literature in which he made considerable proficiency having had apollodorus of pergamus for his master in rhetoric whom though much advanced in years he took with him from the city when he was himself very young to apollonia afterwards being instructed in philology by Cephas, he received into his family arius the philosopher and his sons dionysius and nicanor but he never could speak the greek tongue readily nor even ventured to compose in it for if there was occasion for him to deliver his sentiments in that language he always expressed what he had to say in latin and gave it an order to translate he was evidently not unacquainted with the poetry of the greeks and had a great taste for the ancient comedy which he often brought upon the stage in his public spectacles in reading the greek and latin authors he paid particular attention to precepts and examples which might be useful in public or private life those he used to extract verbatim and gave to his domestics or sent to the commanders of the armies the governors of the provinces or the magistrates of the city when any of them seemed to stand in need of admonition he likewise read whole books to the senate and frequently made them known to the people by his edicts such as the orations of quintus metellus for the encouragement of marriage and those of rutilius on the style of building to show the people that he was not the first who had promoted those objects but that the ancients likewise had thought them worthy their attention he patronized the men of genius of that age in every possible way he would hear them read their works with a great deal of patience and good nature and not only poetry and history but orations and dialogues he was displeased however that anything should be written upon himself except in a grave manner and by men of the most eminent abilities and he enjoined the praetors not to suffer his name to be made too common in the contests among orators and poets in the theatres. End of Caesar Augustus, Part Five.